Exit for Podcast Mutants, Magic, and Marvels is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. So for all things media, check out cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. And for all things X's for Podcast, check out X's for Podcast on Twitter and YouTube. Hey everybody, welcome back to another all-new X's for Podcast, your premier comic podcast for modern Marvels, Chronos Gaming Classics, and more. I'm Nico, and you guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. Today's XI4P mixtape has songs from all over the Marvel Universe, kicking things off with Knights of X number 3, moving over to Moon Knight number 12, and then finishing things off with Marvel Voices Pride 2022. Getting started with Teeny Howard and Bob Quinn's reimagining of Excalibur in the form of Knights of X has really been a pleasure. I love getting to talk about this book and the fascinating ways it compels us to take a look at the classic stories that built this era of mutant magic and yet asks us to also step outside of that and imagine an entirely new world where the rules are far fewer and more engaging to be part of. And we hope you guys enjoy this just as much as we enjoyed making it. And don't forget, if you like what you hear, you might even like what you see. So check us out at xsforpodcast.com and xsforpodcast on Twitter. I'm Nico, and you guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N, where I am celebrating the return of one of my all-time favorite runs in such a big way. Hey, everybody. I'm Jake, ally to the Fury. You can find me at OmegaSentinel on Twitter. That's O-H Sentinel. Because I am a Mega Sentinel, I am an ally of the Fury. That's the joke. And I'm Jonah, and you can follow me over on Twitter and Instagram at PeakJonah. That's P-E-A-K. And we hope you survive this experience. Maybe like Gambit? I don't know we were left with this questionable cliffhanger we saw a hand and we saw a card what does that mean i'm fascinated we are here to discuss what is quickly turning into my like thought book my like thinky title we're here to talk about knights of x number three brought to us by the incredible team of teeny howard bob quinn and eric arson on art with vcs ariana mar on incredible lettering work this is one of those titles where the letters matter and it's funny because i feel like we talk a lot about ariana on this show we do it a lot a lot but like she's always on these titles that push the lettering to the next level of course we have incredible work on the cover by Yannick Paquette and uh, Alejandro Sanchez as well as Tom Muller on design okay I don't want to put this off too long this is straight up Jim Jasper's fury it's all straightened out there's dialogue that makes it clear so if anybody has not understood now they can talk to me guys how did you guys feel about jumping into an arc that for all realistic purposes with the exception of a short-term return in the pages of New Excalibur, New Exiles, Die by the Sword 1 through 5, has been closed out since 1987. I think it's just wild that we've got ex-mutants rescuing Jim Jaspers because Jim Jaspers never did a mutant any good before. Specifically, the Jaspers warp where he was just like completely messing with all of the realities of the multiverse. He helps prosecute Magneto during the trial of Magneto, and then when that goes to shit when Fenris attacks them, he tries, and this is the actually the only thing I agree with Jim Jaspers on, he tries to brain Andreas 
struck her because she's a mutant, but really in my mind, it's because she's a Nazi. So it's pretty wild to me that Jim Jaspers is someone in need of rescuing and that the Knights are going to rescue him. It's clarified on the page that a version of Jim Jaspers created the Fury to begin with, because I think that needs to be there. It's so vital. Yeah. And that's the thing I love about this book is how tied to X and other world history it really is. Oftentimes, when writers don't always get to finish their runs that they initially have planned, there'll be this soup. And you kind of like stir it around a little and, you know, you take your spoon, you go to take a big old sip. There's usually something interesting and wild that has been left off that someone could be like, oh, I can eat this. I can now use this. And that's what I feel like is happening here because I find it so fascinating that this plot point hasn't been touched for almost 40 years. I find it fascinating. I love when somebody can pick up from a thread years ago and expand upon it in their own way. So I am really surprised and happy to see that this has been something that's been cooking in that stew for a very, very, very long time. And I'm sure it's been on a very slow simmer. And you know, it's how you bring out a lot of the flavors. And so I'm really excited to see where this is going to go, considering people who are Excalibur fans and now Knights of X fans haven't seen this thread in a very long time. And for me, it's so exciting because I have so long loved these threads and these elements of storytelling. One of the things that I am most proud of is that early on in this show's run, in the first roughly year and a half, we covered all, every single fucking page of Marvel UK Captain Britain ever. Ever. And then we went ahead and covered every single page of Miracle Man. Because it's connected. And, you know, Daredevil 7 proves it. So I had to. And it's all there on Early Access for Podcast. And I was lucky enough to do it with my incredible husband, Kevo. And if you had asked me at that, you know, at the end of that coverage, sitting looking back on the Alan Moore runs of, oh, I guess, I'm sorry, the original writer, it's like Prince, he changed his name to a symbol. And if you're asking me, you know, if I could have ever imagined that this book would exist starring Megan, Bay, Betsy, I mean, who the fuck is Bay? You know, uh, Kylan, Rachel, Gambit, that this book is the inherent successor to so many fractal pieces. Uh, no, let's take that back to the diamond that is Excalibur, right? Because when we think about Excalibur, it really, it's a diamond and each face of it is a facet, you know? And we need to look at the facets of the Excalibur diamond. There's the fact that it starts with Captain Britain UK Weekly in a lot of ways. It's that it transitions to these mold titles like Super Spider-Man and Captain Britain or Marvel Superheroes or the Daredevils. And then it ultimately finds its home in Excalibur born out of the loss of Fall of the Mutants. And then, you know, we have to think about where it goes, where we get characters like Kylan and we get characters like Theron. And from there, we find ourselves in the Pete Wisdom era. I love Pete Wisdom, hate a whole lot of stuff about where he comes from. But I do think he adds something necessary to the Marvel Universe, and that's an asshole in a suit. (laughs) So the thing that, you know, and let's not forget the most important fractal of the diamond. It's that the lead male dancer in Maya's A Case of the X is wearing a classic Excalibur tank top. So it's the things that matter, right? And this fractal diamond face, this facet of the Excalibur diamond is such a surprise for me as a classic fan of the series because I want to reject this on on like a surface level 
like in that sort of out of pocket gambit, you can fuck yourself. But you know what? Some of my favorite years of Excalibur are teams that I never expected. And every page of Knights of X I read, I fall a little bit more in love. And it's been really exciting. You're really pointing to how rooted this book is in its own history. First, you've got, you know, Megan at the height of her power. You know, she's not, you know, a lost little girl who can't control her shape shifting. She is a mother and a sorceress and, you know, an elemental of other world fully in control of her power she can banish that giant fury back to the everforge amazing you've got the fury referring to rachel as ascani which is like an a throwback to a role that she never really got to take up in the 90s as mother ascani in the far future where she helped protect cable or initially tried to help protect cable and cloned him and made strife and all of that stuff there's a reference, I think it's in the last issue, to how there are no other variants of Rachel, which is something that was established during the Cross Time Caper, that in the whole multiverse, Rachel Summers is the only Rachel Summers, which I think is going to come into play here because we're seeing more about variants as well. There's just so much rich history in this book that's being pulled on to, to really paint a story that is epic in scope and scale. It's just such an exciting, like the energy of this book is really exciting. And I keep worrying when I open a new issue that I'm going to be bogged down by so many characters needing so much character development. But I think that this book trusts that its readers have some sense of who of what these characters are doing here, even as it does a decent job filling that in as we go. How do you take your established medium and conversely mix it with a non-traditional medium that you usually see it in? And how do you make those two work together perfectly and harmoniously? I think this book does does that very well in terms of putting superheroes in Arthurian legend. And I think Excalibur started that way back when and gave us, you know, laid that groundwork for us to have this here today. But more so what I'm trying to, to express is that I think this book is a beautiful mix of telling a, you know, medieval fantasy story using superhero characters that are pre-established. And I think that the entire team for this book are really doing a great job of painting this picture of how do you put these characters on you know, a medieval fetch quest. And I, I think that there are so many different tie-ins that I, I think are for everybody, whether you're a casual fan or you're a hardcore fan, where you can find these different nuggets of history that are being brought into this situation to give you this story and this quest that I think is so fascinating in how the mutants have to kind of deal with this problem. And I think one of the things that's so funny is you guys keep saying mutants, like, and I keep forgetting these are mutants, like, because it doesn't really feel like a mutant book as as though it feels like a quest. It feels like, in some ways, someone said, I'm going to play Marvel Adventure Quest and I'm going to do the Otherworld mission. And when you do the Otherworld mission, you have to use Megan. That's where you unlock her character. But uh, let's see. I'm going to use Bay from the Krakoa expansion. I'm going to use Gambit from the Basic Slut expansion. I'm going to use Rachel from the Always Awesome expansion. And great. Like, it really feels some, and then Kylan just makes no sense. Like he is a reskin of another character that's inexplicably the Kylan skin. Aww. I love him here. No, I'm I'm really positive on it. But like I remember one time talking to an editor at Marvel, and I said, you know, oh, I would love to see a book that starred like, and I said a bunch of obscure mutants, and they were like, wow, but could you put Wolverine in there so that we could sell a copy? Oof. And I was like, fuck. 
And I feel like Kylan is like, I mean, this is also like 15 years ago, but like Kylan is kind of like the that guysiest that guy. Like he is the the fuck of of X-Men. You know, it's one thing when I'm like, wow, Ascani, that's a deep cut. But then I'm kind of like deep cuts like Ascani are like, but what's a Kylan? And it's so fascinating to me seeing because Mordred, this isn't Mordred's first Excalibur. If we're talking about the Excalibur diamond, we also need to include Hulk UK, the Otherworld quest starring Black Knight and Captain Britain and Jackdaw, I guess. And everyone fucking hates Jackdaw. I'm not even here to couch it. That was the main thesis of our coverage. He is the worst character in comics ever. And the thing of it is, this book with this opening sequence of Megan single-handedly batting the Fury away, that really reminds us of Megan's origin in Captain Britain. So like, this is so good. Mm -hmm. Teeny Howard knows what she's doing and Bob Quinn is drawing it with an exquisite, delicate attention to the nuance that makes each character each character. Something that I think a lot of people don't realize is that when you're drawing, there's times that certain details have to get sacrificed. It's just not possible to capture every detail of every character every time. I'm not saying make mistakes. I'm saying forego some elements of eyebrow or forego every finger on the hand because it's far enough away that you're not going to see every finger on the hand. Something I think Bob Quinn does especially well in fight sequences is capturing the specific iconography that makes the character recognizable. For instance, I think there is so much subtlety in the way that Kylan, Gambit, and Bay are presented at the end of the fight on digital page five, where Bay says, it was a fine revenge, Lady Megan. I guess think fucks, it was a fine revenge, Lady Megan. I don't know how to say what Bay does, but it really is an exquisite capturing of what makes the visuals function on an almost directorial level. The thing that I'm, I'm constantly falling in love with are these moments of intimacy between characters. These emotional expressions are so subtle. And I looked at Kylan because I don't really know him as well, but his face is so expressive in every panel. Whether you've got confused Kylan or surprised Kylan or angry that he has to fight Mordred Kylan. Every face, every picture of a face, I just can read the emotion on it so well. It doesn't fall flat. It pops off the page. I think that's one of the things that really makes this book so engaging. You can read these as as emotional beings as people and not just as stick figures to project yourself onto even a character like apocalypse's son death when they see him in civilith it's all about his posturing and his body language but he's communicating his feelings even as he has that mask that doesn't really show any emotion it's another like real feat in the crafting of a comic where teeny howard is a master of the word bob quinn is clearly a master of the form something i want to touch on nico that you talked about is that in this book we have Shatterstar, Bay, and Kylan, who kind of all do the kind of same thing in the sense that they seem to be primarily weapon fighters. You know, Bay does have her voice and that is part of her mutant ability, but she doesn't seem to utilize it too much. She seems a lot more comfortable with her spear. And what I find so fascinating is that each character, despite being weapon user, feels distinct enough in terms of the poses that Bob uses and the way that he uses action for each character. And I find that fascinating to help give characters a little more individuality when it can be hard to in kind of a book like this. And we talked about it before. There's a 
lot of characters in this book. There's 10 people on this quest, and that's not including anybody secondary slash ancillary to the story that's important, characters like Lady Roma, Merlin, or Opaluna Saturnine. So we have a lot of characters, and not everybody's going to have their moments to specifically shine as brightly as much as we would love that. We also talk about how this book often kind of feels like a D&D campaign, because it kind of is. It is a group of adventurers going on this quest and defeating this bad guy. And that's basically what is every D&D campaign except for that. I often recognize that a lot of ways that you can play a D&D campaign, you can utilize character, can often feel samey. Any tabletop game, a lot of the magic comes from how you're going to flavor things. So seeing these three characters who are kind of all weapon fighters and these three characters, they feel distinct and I really do enjoy that glimpses of personality that Bob puts into every character, whether they're important or they are just in those mob scenes that I enjoy when he gets to draw. So I'm very excited to continue to see his work on this book because I think he brings a lot of personality and a lot of enjoyment in the art and the characters he gets to utilize that really showcase these characters when they don't have their moments of dialogue to get their personality and their character arcs through. I also want to comment on the number of incredible characters and I know we've touched on a few of them here and there. Obviously the name Betsy has come up a few times. We have Death, but there's a number of characters that we've kind of danced around. I just need to say that like Mad Jim Jaspers and the Fury are in such an upper echelon of OP, it doesn't even make fucking sense. Like, you know, Jake, you and I were talking the other day and you asked me about Hyperion versus Miracle Man and like it would kill Hyperion that he wouldn't even measure up. It would destroy him what an insignificant insect Miracle Man thinks he is. And like this is an Alan Moore comic, so like he would literally be made up of tiny little slug worms and stuff and it would be a giant slug worm housing it all. But like <laughs> it would be nothing to Miracle Man to divide the atoms that make up the thought of Hyperion such that he was never a thought. And like that's Miracle Man. Yeah, that's Mad Jim too. Mad Jim Jaspers is like destroy you with a thought. And it's his madness that stops him from it. And the fury is like destroy you with a with a functional thought, with a, you know, an execution, like a replicator on Stargate. But like the fury lacks creativity. So the fury can't kill more inventive heroes. So I think what I'm getting at is, you know, these are such God tier characters. If you want me to believe that somehow Mad Jim is off the board, sure, I can. I can because there's no other way to use him. You know, I'm not sure that you can keep Mad Jim at his full power and have him be an interesting villain. So I guess a limited Mad Jim as a victim? Okay. There's this thing happening in Otherworld. You've got Mad Jim, the reality warping boss of the crooked market, usually. You've got Jamie Braddock, who is like string theory, quantum reality warper himself. You've got Absalom Mercator, who is also a reality. You've got three mutant reality warpers in charge of three provinces of Otherworld, usually when things are going right. That's interesting to me. It is fucking fascinating on a, on a subatomic level. Yes, it is. Is this a seed that has been planted for later? Clearly Apocalypse thought so. Yeah, I'm, I'm really here for whatever teeny Howard's plans for these reality warpers is, because it seems like it's not an accident that these three particular mutants are all being asked to like hold leadership roles in these three provinces of Otherworld. And I'm really curious about what is Apocalypse's plan for the Siege Perilous? Does it relate to the problem of mutant death and resurrection in Otherworld? I'm really excited to see Mercator again, because this is a character who hasn't been around since the Decimation, like since the 198, the like most upsetting X-Men miniseries I've ever read in my life. It's on a list. There's gays in this. I was just excited about the gays. She oh, said so this. anyway. And I said gays. Oh yeah. Finally getting to see Rachel explore her 
her attraction to women. I know Rachel was meant to end up with Kitty, but I kind of prefer the Rachel Betsy ship a little bit more. 10,000% Kate and Ileana can have a thing now because I need this. I mean, Krakoa is about polyamory, folks. Like, we don't yeah, have yeah, to limit the- ourselves <laughs> to one partner. Rachel can have multiple partners. But it's too much to expect <laughs> them to write women in two titles. So I'm not expecting <laughs> them to think that these women are capable of sustaining themselves in two books, let alone sexual satisfaction. In satisfaction. I don't even know what that word is, but they're getting it. I like how Betsy like basically bent the mission to be like, no, we're not going forward until we get Rachel and her team back. Right now, this is what we're doing. I do find it very fascinating that Betsy's doing everything in her power not to go on the actual mission they were set out for to do. Because <laughs> we are in book three, and they still have not gotten any closer to finding the stone. <laughs> it's a MacGuffin. It's the journey that's important. There's something to be said about your question and the nature of what the title seeks to do with mutant magic in general. I think what we see with Richter, who, by the way, it's not that anyone hasn't drawn Richter right in some time, but my Richter kind of got lost somewhere around Ryan Souk. So I really feel like this Richter is a character that has, you know, Latino features and Mm -hmm. has a a really visual look to him that I love and I identify with. I'll be real. This is not my favorite Shatterstar outfit. It's deeply rooted in Shatterstar canon. You know, my star is maybe a little bit more boho chic and I see how that doesn't work on this book. But, you know, Shatterstar has so many weird powers. Like he has the ability to teleport by making that X with the swords, which is so cool. And, you know, he's got all of these physical abilities. Shatterstar is in so many ways a result of technology, not magic. So Shatterstar is a really interesting choice here, whereas everyone else is really locked into this idea of mutant magic. And, you know, all reality warping is mutant magic. You can just deal with it. So, like, (laughs) it's really interesting to me that Shatterstar, this developed in a lab, is maybe named Gadriva, is maybe named Benjamin Russell, is really high. I'm so happy they're saying I love you to each other. It's perhaps the conceptual outlier that enhances the book in a lot of ways. It can be really fun to have a science character dropped into a magic story as a kind of contrast and counterpoint. Someone to like make the funny observations that like, this is all really strange and weird compared to what I've been through. And what is Mojoverse if not a television screen horror show version of Otherworld? And I mean that like ruled by a, a, you know, at this point a cruel leader you know a, a an overseer who has made the whole world in their image Saturnine versus Mojo this idea of pomp and circumstance and it all has to be done the way I want before my spectators the TV screen so you know Mojo is to Opal as or Saturnine sorry didn't mean to call you the wrong name genocidal empress as Mojoverse is to Otherworld and I really man the more I think about that's why I started this episode with this is my think book Every time I think about this book, it becomes more potent. It becomes more potentiary. And that's the thing that makes a title that doesn't always give me what I'm looking for month to month. You know, something I've noticed a lot on Comixology, which, you know, Mar- you know, Amazon is claiming that they're going to fix Comixology. And I'm just like, we just got House of X and Powers of 10. I don't think anybody is going to pull off that big a resurrection of a line anytime soon. 
but I really look forward to seeing Amazon try. But all of our comicsology titles, the title, not the arc, is labeled one of five, one of six, one of eight, which is making me think that perhaps Marvel is trying to approach these things with a more finite look and just kind of volume it out. I don't care if this is called Knights of X one through five, and the next thing is called Sir Lancelot of X, starring Betsy Braddock as Sir Lancelot. I don't give a shit because I know that I would buy every variant, but like, (laughs) but it's, it's the swan, by the way. Um, it's the swan, Betsy. (laughs) So I, I, I'm going to think of that title, no matter what the fuck they call it as Excalibur 36, because it's that diamond, no matter what they call these books, there's really something that's making me feel like we are entering an age where Marvel is believing in their writers again. And this has never been Marvel's best-selling book. This has been one of the lower selling X books at times. It needs the birth. You know, some of the most influential X books I can ever think of did not have powerhouse sales when they started. And years later, we're all still talking about, you know, X-Factor investigations when that was never one of the, you know, books du jour. So I really am just, I'm grateful for this title because every time we talk about it, I care a little more. This book has so much open potential still. There are so many great avenues it can go. Remy has just been supposedly killed, but it feels like we're going to see his iteration of the horseman death again, which we haven't seen in a long time. Nico, you mentioned Black Knight before as this sort of bedrock component of these other world stories. And right now we have a Black Knight who is also a mutant. Is she going to show up at all in this? And Bob Quinn has experience drawing her. So that's absolutely significant. Bob Quinn drew the Cy Spurrier penned X-Men Death of Doctor Strange Black Knight one shot. There's just so much potential here. And I'm so, so excited to see what the next chapters of this story are going to be. I'm so excited to finally, finally get to Mercator, um, the the region of Otherworld that has been sealed off to us. It's just, oh. And I I didn't think I'd be this excited to see these these stories continue. I didn't think that, because otherwise, world has never been it's always been like a really confusing mishmash for me but teeny howard has really codified it and made it interesting and elevated it and brought it into into step with uh with with the marvel universe it's not it's not just kind of its own thing floating away making no sense anymore it it, it's rooted and it's become such fertile ground for storytelling now i really like that you brought up the death of gambit at the end because i think one of the things that i really you know and it's not if this doesn't happen it has nothing to do with Teeny Howard or Bob Quinn or Eric Arseniega or Ariana Mar or even any of the editors whose names are listed on the front page it has to do with an overall corporate you know plan but and it's a shame but I would really really love to see Gambit come back otherworlded perhaps not exactly in the same way that perhaps uh, in the same way that Rockslide came back and he came back kind of wrong uh, you know, that's he's clearly not still in the mental place he was when he left. So, you know, I'm not trying to glorify any sort of trauma, but if we see some sort of you can come back a different way from Otherworld, you know, just a different iteration of yourself, I would.
would love to see a different Gambit. Like, a wholly new, otherworld iterated Gambit. One who comes back and maybe has a different relationship with tarot cards. Because he died holding one, maybe. And it's a magical world. Who knows? But, you know, a lot of this Gambit's origin got so weird with, is he a clone? Isn't he a clone? Is he a Summers? Isn't he a Summers? Why has he got to be so creepy? He's got that power of suggestion ability that only works on you if you don't know about it. So it's like literally the definition of like rapey and reset him. What a great opportunity. Rogue's not going to be happy though. No, and that's a challenge for Rogue, but I would not hate the idea of seeing Rogue come into her own as a single woman for a while. I by of course no means think that the only way that a woman can find herself is without a man in her life, but I also don't know that I love the idea that she needs a man in her life. She wants to lead the glamorous life. She's Sheila Eing it. I don't disagree with you, but I do think that if they were going to do that, you can't have Rogue go through that without the grief that comes with losing a partner. I mean, I think that's its own entire story before she gets to like, hey, I'm single, ready to mingle. Well, I do think that would be an incredible story to tell. It's it's also a very painful story. And I can see why it's it's something that people would be hesitant to necessarily go with because Rogue has had so much pain and so much trauma and so much just agony that uh, there has to be another way for her. Like the, the, the Rogue that we're seeing in this X-Men series is joyous and, you know, in possession of her power and happy and loves her husband and has her moms you know it's it's rogue ecstatic in a way that i don't think we've ever seen her before and not that i don't think that conflict you know can lead to good storytelling but i just i want her to be happier for a little longer she's had it so rough you guys i hear what you're both saying and i don't think that it's a bad story for a writer to tackle i don't know if this is the time for that conflict for rogue's character arc right now. I think what I've seen from what Marvel wants to do with Rogue is kind of have her deal with her moms first, because there's already strife between the way that Irene is treating Gambit, and Rogue is kind of torn between, you know, her the love of her life, Gambit, and the people who raised her, her mothers, Irene and Mystique. And I don't know if this is the time to have Gambit come back different and not quite the same, whatever the otherworld resurrection of Gambit looks like. I don't know if that needs to be added to the current conflict that Rogue is having with Gambit because they currently are on a little bit of rocky terms or it seems like Rogue is fine but Gambit is unhappy but hasn't communicated that. I'm a little unclear exactly what where they're standing right now with their relationship. It's all because they're both being utilized in two separate books but we're together at some point. I don't know the current timeline of how they feel about one another or where they're currently at in terms of their communication levels. Granted, one is in outer space and the other is in other worlds so I don't know if they could be talking too much right now but i don't know if that story for rogue is i don't know if that timing is right right now especially if there's going to be a larger story at play with mystique and destiny that rogue is going to be playing a part of i don't know if rogue on top of that needs a conflict with her husband i do think that can be an interesting storytelling for after that event i don't know if marvel and readers are ready for that right now for rogue i just want to celebrate that we're discussing man i hope they don't change gambit because that would 
would mean bad things for Rogue and mm-hmm. not, man, I wish they could keep defining Rogue by a boyfriend. No, we're like, that would be an inconvenient plot story for Rogue who's got bigger things to worry about in her narrative. So it wouldn't change her story. It would affect her. But killing Gambit's fine. Like we're not <laughs> like, we're not talking about it. Like we're so worried about if Rogue would even stay in the books if Gambit leaves. Like, you know, when they brought Kate back to write her out when Colossus died. Uh, uh. Rogue really feels like the star of of her relationship. Maybe it's just from seeing that juxtaposition of Rogue as the X-Men and Gambit as the one who plays cards in the treehouse with like all the other like smattering of heroes and villains in New York. Like he's the casual husband and she's the hardworking professional. And in that way, she is the she is the star of their relationship. It's kind of great, you know? She's like, I don't want kids. And Remy's like, I'm I'm I am happy with our cats. I've never enjoyed reading rogues so much i guess maybe when she was palling around with bobby and like being a supportive figure there rogue is living her best life and looking her best and just excelling what is going on with shogo i don't even know what he's doing in this title and i don't think it's even necessarily the fault of any particular thing that brought us here it's just where we are and it's awkward i love this idea of it's something we talked a lot about in our Avengers coverage last week in Avengers Volume 2 with Marvel Legacy, there needs to be another Age of X-Men hero, a Marvel hero, somebody who's not quite 18, but not quite 38. And in your 20s, you might find yourself a parent. And that's a beautiful story to tell. It's just there's so much going on in this book. There isn't room for a big old dragon. Well, now he's little. Yeah, but then then what's he doing? I mean, it just feels like he's a dog baby dragon. I think all of the writers were put in this catch-22 for Shogo when Shogo was first brought to Otherworld and had this ability to turn into a dragon and everybody's like this is cool right but didn't think about the actual ramifications of what that meant for this child character nor for what it means for Jubilee so I think everybody's just kind of a little unsure what to do with Shogo because Shogo's not really a character he's a baby babies aren't actual characters in terms of like I don't think we're gonna see Shogo go through this deep character arc but it is just I think not quite sure what do you do with this character without their mind but what does that mean for this baby and what does that mean for jubilee i think everybody's just kind of like we don't really know what to do so we're gonna try to just do some stuff that sticks because ultimately i have no idea why shogo specifically needs to be here maybe he'll choose to live out his life as a dragon and never bother us again with being a baby i think he is a character that you know i i'm not trying to say anybody should give up their child it's not like that and it's i'm not trying to be callous it's just one of those things where characters come and go from these books and that's what makes it not real life that's what makes it a comic book that there's points at which you say for story purposes it's better that the character be written out for now and come back later look at kylan kylan's living his best fucking hairy life now Hey everybody, Nico here again. Moon Knight is one of the most fascinating things that we cover on this show. It's sort of outside of the purview of so much else that we cover, yet at the same time, it's part of a wave of exciting stories that we've been bringing into our fold, like Elektra and Punisher and Ghost Rider. It represents a necessary element of the Marvel Universe's total picture, the sort of macrocosmic world that shapes the funny pages that we cover week after week, and we couldn't do it without the incredible work of the Midnight Mission talking about Moon Knight. Enjoy.
Hey everybody, welcome to another exciting segment of X's for Podcast. I'm Nathan, you can find me online at Twitter at DazzlerAOA. That's like Dazzler in the Age of Apocalypse, where you can hear me talking about how much I love Tigra. And this is Juancho, you can find me on Twitter at Lost in Krakow. Hello, it's me, Steve, and you can find me on Twitter at HowdyDuda, that is H-O-W-D-Y-D-U-D-A. And that makes me Raven, aka Dame Red Thread. And you can find me at like, you know, Twitter, Instagram, yeah, yeah, all around the net. And hopefully you will survive this issue, unlike that poor lady with the chainsaw. I can't wait to talk about that completely casual murder in this issue. <laughs> I guess that means we're talking about Moon Knight number 12. It's the killing time, part two. The finale to this epic year-long saga. Let's see, we've got Jed McKay as our writer, Alessandro Capuccio as our artist, Rochelle Rosenberg working her magic on colors, and BC's Corey Petit as our letterer, Steven Segovia and Rochelle Rosenberg on the main cover, and we've got Russell Dawson. Waterman and gone on our very main covers. So, anything you want to pick up physical? What cover did you get? I got the Steven Segovia main cover. I am a fan of Steven Segovia. I liked his work a lot on Hellions, so I was really excited to see him dress some Moon Knight and Zodiac. I also got the original cover. It just jumped out at me, and I was like, this is what I want. I got the beautiful Scon cover because I love Tigra, <laughs> and she is rocking it on that cover, and Moon Knight looks amazing on it. Like, so I'm looking at the standard cover here and like you can tell how Rochelle's colors make that cover pop the whites to the red of the gun yeah I want to stop here before we get into this and say like we talk all the time on this show about Rochelle Rosenberg's colors and how they make the series what it is but I actually stopped about three or four pages into this issue to have to like tweet at Rochelle Rosenberg to say thank you because I was just so bowled over by how like drenched in moonlight New York looks under her pens and it's phenomenal. Like, I don't know what I could say because I don't have the words to talk about it, but like there's so much in the series that has been so beautiful. Perfect hangnail moons with the horns just almost touching by Capuccio are incredible, but the shine given to them by Rosenberg just makes them spectacularly like eldritch and occult and spooky and it makes everything work together perfectly. The use of greens, blues, yellows, oranges, and red. That's honestly a hard color combination to pull off and not have it just come out kind of you know muddled and this feels like moonlight and it's always so soft and gorgeous and with that stark contrast and usually you see you know blues juxtapositions next to like the reds and the yellows so like very bright primary colors instead we have this gentle play with secondary colors that is used so masterfully to give this very ethereal feel to everything it just oh it's so good like it's a master of not only color but also the line work and the composition. Just to add one more thing to the colors, you can tell how they're used to tell a story here, because you can see when I'd say Zodiac is in control, everything's more orangey, reddish. When the moon nights show up, everything comes with that green glow that Raymond's talking about. Mm -hmm. And you can tell, you can remove all the letter work, and you could still tell like who's sort of in charge here, just thanks to Rachel's color. I completely agree. Whenever the moon is working, it's magic. You have that like bluish green glow coming around when Hunter's moon does his little say 
seance and stuff like that. It's it's phenomenal. And I just want to give a shout out because we also like to talk here about lettering, especially the onomatopoeic sounds because they came back here very well. Yeah. Yes. In mm-hmm. We got the chunks. We got the whams. Mm-hmm. What? Yeah, I like all the little chunk, chunk, chunks of the moon discs. Mm-hmm. And thank you for giving us at least one or two femme presenting moon nights. That was a really nice but subtle addition. And I know that doesn't always mean a lot to everybody or some people will complain about it. But honestly, when lore can often be used to exclude or gatekeep, the fact that you get representation in a book means that that becomes part of the lore and therefore opens a lot of those gates. So if somebody goes, oh, no, they're, you know, women can't be blah, 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 blah. Or, you know, females can't da, 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 da. You go, yeah, they can. Look, there's canon for it. It's on page in color. Ta-da! <laughs> like, you're wrong! It's amazing that the subtle expansions of the canon make me want to learn more. Yeah. It's like, I want to know more about these Fists of Kanchu from the past. Like, I hope we get to see them in some of this continued run and what this new deal Mark made with Kanchu and how it's going to affect him going forward in the hopefully next 12 issues, hopefully next 48 issues of this Moon Knight series. How do we feel about Zodiac as a villain seeing his complete arc? Do we think he was credible and justified? Or is he just amazingly fun and batshit crazy? Which <laughs> He has an identifiable ideology, but his ideology is like bullshit. He's the Sex Pistols anarchist who thinks anarchy is synonymous with chaos and like ret- wanton violence. And he's obsessed with the idea of people being free. And to him, what that means is essentially not having like a superego like it's just people following their id in the most base instincts that they have his idea of anarchy is just super villainy for the sake of super villainy essentially and his trying to bring mark back to a, an era of you know just like unfiltered violence and being essentially an animal let out of a cage is compelling because he has like an ideology sort of like flag smasher where like it does fit a pattern you know is it justifiable absolutely not like he's completely wrong and he's just an agent of chaos on his own but I really like that he remains an intelligent villain he's not the kind of guy who is like oh I didn't plan for this like he did plan for this he planned for everything he just did not know that Mark could commune with his imprisoned moon god and travel through the overvoid and bring with him an army of zombie this <laughs> because we didn't even know that Mark didn't even know that like this is entirely new territory so when he's dumbfounded by the idea that Moon Knight could be here when he's not supposed to be here because he planned for him to be elsewhere and then he immediately thinks to himself and goes no no you are in Jersey he's in Jersey whatever this is I'm not buying it like he just starts blasting and then he pulls out his gun and just start blasting but yeah it's, it's it's great to see how he's he even in the depths of his like I, I want everybody to be crazy and anarchic and chaos and in the middle of all that he's still like no I planned for this he is 100% an internet troll he's a sadist he stokes the worst of human nature and lets it just fester and burn and like he keeps poking the bear until the bear mauls somebody and that's where he's getting off yeah and he seems to be okay with the idea of the bear mauling him which is the thing like it seems like anything that furthers his agenda even his own death would be pretty cool in his book part of what makes Zodiac compelling is fun to read because his dialogue is is like very operatic and theatrical like Mm -hmm. you can hear the inflections or like no you weren't supposed to be here or I cannot feel pain as much as I never want to like be like Moon Knight is like Batman because really fundamentally 
fundamentally they're very different zodiac is like a batman villain like he's got that mm-hmm. rogues gallery thing where it's like this is my gimmick and i'm a theater student and i will live out my dreams by doing crime a little joker a little clay face yeah he's so fun to read even though he's batshit crazy yeah i mean when he's like you're never where you're supposed to be and then mark's like you're a dead man zodiac then he goes on this long tirade and he's amazing he's fun he's brutal as fuck do we think he killed soldier everybody do we think soldier is gone i think conchu might have a new fist oh that's interesting i didn't think of that that's really interesting it would be kind of cool for soldier to become yet another fist because gods can have more than three fists why not to god <laughs> but this isn't borne out in the pages necessarily but like there was a scene towards the end where reese is like got her face on top of soldier's like shot body and his bloody wound is leaking everywhere and she's got blood all over her mouth and like she of course would because she's been in a fight but the proximity of her mouth to his wound and the blood everywhere and the blood on her mouth made me think for a second that maybe she in desperation turned him into a vampire to save his life and I still don't know if that's maybe what is going on here Mm, yeah I also had that thought so there are definitely going to be ramifications in the next issue that are going to come home to roost because yeah yeah, that's a giant question mark and there's a lot of different ways that that could go. I'm not sure if I want Soldier to come back because I think that there has to be something more that makes Soria more competent. You can take him seriously as a threat if he actually can kill like a person who is just a regular dude. And I think that makes Soldier's sacrifice a lot more stronger too that he was willing to die to protect you know the midnight mission. Yeah. 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 It would make sense for it to fit in as the price that Mark is paying for contract passage as well I, whether yeah. or not he is risen again as a moon knight you know or as a fist of Kanchu, i guess i should say or a like, vampire or, even or a vampire yeah yeah it, like there's a price being paid here i love that because otherwise you don't have zodiac cause some sort of mayhem or death or destruction that at least not irreversible character changing at least then he run the risk of him becoming arcade <laughs> and where murder world is like really it's not murder world who's actually died in murder it's world? trap world if nobody ever died then and you start running into the very Batman kind of feel where it's just plot armor, plot armor. A, you're not Kirk Owens, <laughs> okay? And that's a whole different uh, conversation that they're having over on the X titles. But like, yeah, there needs to be consequences and there needs to be like real world backlash or else it just starts feeling like every other, you know, superhero book out there. And Moon Knight is known for how much like kind of real grit and love loss and a mystic side and the side that deals with a lot of death so have everybody just keep surviving uh wouldn't really fit with kind of the whole feel of moon knight so let's talk about the murder of the chainsaw lady that was so brutal that was incredibly brutal i've been reading a lot of chainsaw man lately and so i feel like i was primed to read this and to be like cheering because this felt like a page out of chainsaw man for like half a second there but yeah a lady swings a chainsaw at mark or not even at mark at a different fist and Mark just comes over he leaves the battle where he was fighting Zodiac he comes over he forcibly rips a chainsaw out of her arm and as she screamed oh no he just chainsaws her to death (laughs) and like like, I gotta say the sound effects here are incredible the lettering of the chainsaw from bloody red as it goes 
It's so good and it's so violent and it's so quick. And the thing about this that really blew my fucking mind is that he grabs this weapon. He has no weapons. He grabs this weapon. He chainsaws a woman to death. He sees Zodiac and goes, Zodiac! He just murdered that woman and then it's like, all right, I remembered I have to punch you now, Zodiac. <laughs> and he drops his chainsaws and picks up his baton. I do have to laugh about that. Also, I understand why he dropped that because sometimes when you get really mad, you lose your logic. Yes, taking the chainsaw over would have been so much easier and so much more effective. But also, his need to, like, punch this dude in the face and choke him the fuck out was so strong. <laughs> I can get behind that sentiment, so I understand why he did it. I mean, a chainsaw is a tool. It's not as personal as a face yeah. to the face, right? I think it's what you're getting at, Raven. That's exactly it. Instead of just chainsaw everyone in finishing the fight in, like, 10 minutes, <laughs> just chainsaws one woman and then scoop. She just tossed the chainsaw around. It's a two-page splash that is some of the most perfect composition I have seen in a two-page splash fight scene in a long, long, long time. You know, Moon Knight is up on the upper left and Zodiac's down on the upper right, pointing the gun at him while they look directly at each other across the battle. And on either side, you can see each person engaged with their own Fist of Kanchu. They're fighting Tiger slashing a guy's face off. Even a Fist of Kanchu getting, like, immolated by a flamethrower. The moon is that perfect hangnail with the horns almost touching and the, the light glinting off of the edge of the beam. It is intense. It is action-packed. It is extremely well-composed. It even obeys the rule of thirds. It is like a shot from a very good movie. And what's funny about that is he's jumping directly at Zodiac. They are like three feet apart. And then the next thing we see, he leaves to go do the chainsaw murder and then sees Zodiac again and goes, I forgot I was about to kill you. I love this two-page splash so freaking much. It's so well-balanced and yet there's so much like twisting movement in it. And it uses shadows really, really well, which I think there was another book that I was covering that that was a problem with one of the two-page splashes is that there was action on one page, but it was really, really dark and black and just no real information on the other page. But this, you see the balance. And even though like the foreground is in shadow, you can still see like, you know, a fist of Khonshu going up against one of the henches. Then right behind that, you've got Moon Knight and Zodiac and then the flamethrower person. And, da, da, da. and so, yeah, it's this beautiful, almost twisting motion. And it is so good. This is probably one of my favorite pieces of art that I've seen in the comics medium or even outside of it in the last few years. It's beautifully executed, beautifully colored. You can tell the scripting was beautiful on that page. It's just perfect. The panel layout in this issue really stunned me. For like a 12th issue that is closing out an arc, they pulled out all the stops. Even on that next page after the chainsaw murder, there's that like nice little quick horizontal panel layout where it's Tigra talking and each of the allies gets a moment where Tigra slashes the guy's face and as Tigra continues talking, Hunter's Moon is starting to wake up and then Reese is like bloodily and weepingly contemplating soldier's death. It's like all the pieces of what's about to happen next are happening simultaneously. And it really gets that idea across of space and time. Having followed this book from issue one to now we're at issue 12, how do we feel about Reese's journey? How do we feel about her transformation from young teenager who was unfortunately inflicted with vampirism to now seemingly pushed to the point where she just can't take the shit anymore and she is like, nope, I have to fight back. Gen Z? What? She's spent a lot of time with Mark and she's seen a lot of like ugly violence, especially in the last couple of hours even. This could be read as her like giving into her vampire instincts, but I don't I don't think that's what's happening at all. I think she's just been pushed by the constant losses and targeting and attacks by this this guy who portrayed himself to be their friend Terry for a while. And I, I think it makes complete sense. And when she's finally 
constantly like standing over him with her eyes glowing red in the moonlight and her body looking kind of grotesque and twisted in the shadow. That is like legitimately scary and cool. Two issues ago when Mark killed that Face kind of guy, when he gathers like his team, like immediately he says, notice how Reese is in here. And I think that Mark's may, might have been afraid that if Reese was shown more violence and more killing and more death, she would become like him. And that brings you like a full circle with their conversation at the end. Like Mark's not afraid of Reese becoming like Zodiac. She, he's afraid of her becoming like him. And I think that's that's very cool. I agree. I'm always so frustrated and annoyed when a male character in a comic book who's a superhero will like with a female character who also has superpowers will be like, no, 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 no. This vengeance isn't yours. This vengeance is mine. Or you can't kill him because I have to kill him to protect you from becoming like him. It's still a little annoying that it happened here because Mark is being a little patriarchal to this like immortal vampire. I know she's young, but like, I really like the twist that he's like, no, I'm not worried about you becoming like the bad guys. I'm worried about you ending up like me because I have become a bloodstained killer and I'm returning to that right now. And I just, I just don't want this for you. Even though she's a vampire, I love that he's going out of his way to try to like retain what little innocence she has left. Oh my God. Yeah. The no, no, let me save you, you poor young creature. And it's like, Mark, I, I know you think that she's just this poor young kid, but like, this is a young black woman. She has been forced into this role that she never wanted. And she's been pushed to the edge just because th- that's what would fucking happen in this situation. You know, like anybody would be this angry. It, it's not the vampire nature, which I love that they didn't go, oh, I just I have to fight this hunger or this, you know, burning desire for da da da. It's like they didn't lean into the trope. And I love that. But they did show this young black woman having to, you know, grow up so much faster than she should have had to and, and having to deal with very heavy issues. And and they didn't shy away from that. I appreciate it. One of my very favorite parts of this whole issue was the Hunter's Moon bit. I love Hunter's Moon. This character has really grown on me so much. Hunter's Moon wakes up and he starts taking the chains off of him that have kept him down and he wraps them around his fists like like Matt Murdock would before like a really good street fight, you know? <laughs> right. He, he starts uh, wrapping around his fists and standing up and he's got the chain and he says, I could prevent another from occurring. And it looks like he's just going to whip ass. And then he just like kneels to the ground and the chains are kind of like a rosary for him. The chains symbolize like a link. He is a link in the chain that consists of all of the fists of Kanchus. They represent the link between him and all of these other fists of Kanchu and everybody who's worked for the moon god and is part of this family. He calls them his brothers and sisters. I love the symbolism of this thing that would be like a very violent street weapon that he looks like he's about to use. And instead it's connecting his two fists with the links of this chain that he's a part of. That is such beautiful symbolism. It's subtle and it's wonderful. Well, and it's a double-edged symbolism because yes, it's a grounding to the the cause that he has joined, but also it is the chains of servitude. It has such a beautiful dual meaning. It's like, ah, oh, it's both heartbreaking and endearing at the same time. It's it's complex. And I, I like the fact that it is very complex. It makes so much use of the metaphor of the links and the chains and the fists. And I love that. 
it seems to me like Jed McKay is always sitting at home and just being like, fists, fists, fists. What, <laughs> what do fists mean? Say my favorite part of that speech was, you know, just Hunter's Moon's like still unwavering faith in Kanchu when he says, I will join you there in time when my own duty to our father takes my life for the final time. Like, that's just like he knows that his service to his god, Kanchu, is going to eventually end up in his death for the fight. And he so unwaveringly accepts that and almost looks forward to the day like a little bit like a Klingon. The panels just before that, it's one of the funniest panels in the whole run. When like Tigris is like, okay, so we're gonna fight, right? <laughs> no, just, just, what? He's alive? And Tigris just screams. Yeah, what? That was very funny. I do like that Tiger got a chance to have some good comedy moments, especially after the weight of her deception to Mark has been sort of lifted from her. So she really got to have some fun moments, which is what we all love and look for from Tiger, right? She's a fun character. She's going to be the, the sexy cat lady who's going to like try to purr and flirt with you. <laughs> while you're like you know murdering stuff so like it's really good to see her get of almost a healing arc herself by you know getting a little bit of the light and joy back what do we think the price of mark's re-accepting Kanchu as his guy is gonna be i think like most things with Kanchu, it's a price that keeps getting paid there's the sacrifice of soldier and as we talked whether a soldier becomes a fist of Kanchu, whether he becomes a vampire whether he just dies or whether he survives with like a debilitating condition. All of these things are things that could easily be part of the price, but since Kanchu, being the rat bastard that he is, did not name a price before the bargain was struck, I imagine it's going to be pretty much whatever he demands for a long time. Maybe part of the price was reverting to Stephen Grant at the last minute and being unable to exact the vengeance that he wanted so desperately on Zodiac. I don't know. It's impossible to say with gods because you can always blame them for everything bad that happens to you. Well, in Kanchu, we have seen repeatedly loves to put his servitors in a position where they're gonna have to make a deal and they don't have time to like hash out any nuance or finer points so that deal can be whatever Kanchu wants to make up in his own little freaking head and he doesn't have to tell you until he feels like telling you or feels like making up something for you so like you're just fucked every which way around he is the worst abusive partner ever for me, I think it's going to be something about Mark's fractured personalities, because that's something we haven't really seen here until the final page. Every issue, it has always been Mark Spector. We have not seen Jake Lockley. We have seen Stephen Grant. I think that's going to be part of it. And to add to your point, Raven, about how Conchu is a very manipulative bastard, you can tell how Mark's deal is a, a lot about his guilt, right? His guilt of imprisoning him. And like Conchu is like, oh, you did this to me, so now you got to pay this price to free me or something. I mean, Mark's already paid so much here with Soldier's death, but he's going to pay mentally a lot more. I think he's going to lose part of his not happy, but happier place he's been mentally. And I think he's going to lose a lot of that. Yeah, I think it's going to definitely affect the seemingly less fractured state of his mental health. We see that at the end with Stephen Grant reappearing. He has found acceptance in himself in these last 12 issues. And I feel like that is going to definitely suffer. And like, 
all said Kanchu's petty. So Kanchu is going to put Mark through some extra ordeals because Mark rejected him and helped imprison him. And so how do we feel? Stephen Grant is back. Is anybody excited? Was anybody expecting that? I was annoyed by it. But like, not in a bad way. Not in the, oh my guy, here. Like, I'm annoyed by it because I'm like, oh, fuck. He's the white knight. And he's going to do everything he can to try and save the fair maiden, which in this case, oh. I believe is Reese. And he's going to try and spare that innocence. And it's like, Stephen, I love you. But trying to protect her her innocence and her fairer nature is, is not the jam, my dude, at all. If it's the storyline, I really want to see where it goes. Yeah, I love it. It fits the personality. It fits the storyline. Stephen Grant's the bombastic, like, Jurassic Park archaeologist, right? I mean, he's more of a movie producer in the comics. <laughs> he's just sexy scientist laying back, being gently wounded. <laughs> he obviously sees himself as the ideal version of the personality. He's going to be a little sanctimonious. He's going to be a lot misogynist, I believe. <laughs> you know, but I just, I'm excited to see what's going to come forward. Yeah, I'm looking forward to the Stephen Grant return. I'm looking forward to seeing how Jed McKay works in all these alter personalities which has been completely devoid of them for some time which I think was kind of a smart move because yeah. when you're talking about pluralistic people you want to be very careful and yeah. especially if you're writing about somebody who's been written before as a maniac or a psycho to use some words that are not great being brought up in Moon Knight constantly. I appreciate the fact that Jeb is not just going straight in going here's all the personalities and here's Jake and here's Steven like the fact that this team made Mark more stable and not constantly tripping between all the different personalities really helped kind of solidify that Mark has been going to therapy. Mark has been doing the work to center himself and become more secure in who he is as a person. And maybe the altars were not as needed because that's when the altars tend to pop up is when they are needed. So if Mark has had some time to heal and has actually been putting in the work, it makes sense that the altars might not pop up as often. Yeah, now at the most stressful point where he was pretty much about to go off the rails, boom, he had to switch into a different altar. I wonder how the altar thing is going to play out because I don't think you can do it better than, than how it was done in the past in the Lemurian Smallwood run. And I wonder if Mark's regression as a character, thanks to the Avengers run, if we're going to play some of the same beats that Jeff and Smallwood did, just because of the nature of this whole re rehabilitation thing because in the end of that run Mark ended up rejecting Conchu and it's this very iconic page where all the authors gather around and they crush Conchu's skull and I feel like Mark until this run he had regressed a lot with Bemis run and then the Aaron Avengers run and I worry if we're gonna just you know retread that same story of the authors and uh, rejecting Conchu again I know that's gonna put an interesting twist on it but hopefully it's not like the very same ideas maybe not intentionally but if Mark's gonna get fractured again like mentally eventually like the story will converge on mark accepting the personalities and like going back to like by union kind of thing yeah like, you you make a good point especially yeah. after the bemis run i understand that is a serious concern now yeah I love this run. This has honestly been my favorite Moon Knight run so far. And I've read all 
of Moon Knight in, in the last couple of months because I was trying to uh, catch up on some backstory and whatnot. And I'm like, yeah, no, forget it. I like this. It harkens back to Moon Knight history, but it looks towards a future instead of leaning constantly on the past. So I'm, I'm happy with where this is. I'm happy with, I think, the trajectory it's going to take. And I'm just, I'm hoping that it continues doing its thing. Hey everybody, Nico here one last time. And, you know, as a queer person who has always wanted to see this sort of diversity on page from Marvel, it's really exciting to see this Marvel Voices Pride special. And every year we get these incredible specials that further and advance the representation of queer characters in comics. And I'm always really excited to see the ways in which Marvel interpolates our criticism and our feedback. It's also really exciting to get to see this cast of creators grow. I know that a number of the people who have worked on Marvel Voices Pride over the years have also contributed to a book coming out today. I'm really excited to mention that Young Men in Love, a queer anthology, is dropping today, which is July 6th, and it's in a perfect time. You know, U.S. Pride is usually June, U.K. Pride is July. Coming out right around now is a great time to catch both sides of Pride. I happen to have a story in there, and it's really exciting, and I hope you guys enjoy checking that out, as well as brilliant contributions from classic X-Men creators and Marvel creators like Cena Grace, Terry Bloss, Anthony Oliveira, and more. A bunch of those creators are in titles just like this, and I couldn't be prouder to be counted among them. So if you enjoy what you hear here, hopefully you enjoy the contents of Young Men in Love, edited by the incredible Joe Glass and Matt Miner. And until then, we can't wait to hear what you guys think about Marvel Voices Pride number one, and the ways in which it's radically different from last year, and also at times very the same. We're not afraid to voice our concerns that there are still underrepresented minorities within the queer spectrum, and we're excited to see what Marvel does with that feedback in the future. As always, we love making this show for you three times a week every week. We're doing it with MC2 Mondays, Modern Marvel Wednesdays, and XI4P Premiere Fridays. Premiere has definitely been the home of Jason Aaron's Avengers, as we work tirelessly doing these huge segments to try and catch up in time for Judgment More, Judgment Day. I don't know. All I know is the Eternals are like, we're the only people who get to be immortal, and the X-Men are like, we've got the sales figures. So until next time, guys, enjoy this last segment. Keep those mutant lights lit, those Krakoan gateways open. Don't forget, Pride is year-round, whether it's June, July, the US, the UK, anywhere in the world. Pride is year-round, and we hope you guys enjoy. We'll see ya. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to X's for Podcast, your premier comics podcast for modern Marvel's chrono-skimming classics and queer quackery. I'm Jake, and you can find me over at Twitter at Omega Sentinel, O-H Mega Sentinel. And I'm Steven. You can find me on Twitter at Steven of Wonder and over on Facebook as an admin for the House of North Star. I'm Kyle. You can find me on both Twitter and Instagram at Drantis82. That's D-R-A-N-T-I-S 82. And I'm Tori Sheehan. You can find me on Twitter at Tori underscore Sheehan and on Instagram at SMTori. That's Tori with an eye we hope you survived the experience much like hercules survived a neo medusa turning to stone <laughs> oh you mean supreme medusa the <laughs> that must mean we're covering marvel voices pride number one 2022 edition and so we're gonna run down the list we've got all my exes in the nexus written by Alyssa wong with pencils inks and colors by stephen byrne we've got ancient and modern written by andrew wheeler with pencils and 
and Inks by Brittany L. Williams and Jose Villarubia on colors. We've got LGBTD by Grace Freud with Scott B. Henderson on pencils, Lee Townsend on inks, and Brittany Peer on colors. Perfectly Seen, written by Danny Lore with Lucas Bornick on pencils and inks and Michael Wiggum on colors. Stay Out of My Mind Turf, Jack by Chris Cantwell with Keizama on pencils and inks and Rico Renzi on colors. Over the Rainbow by Ira Madison III with Lorenzo Susi on pencils and inks and Rachel Rosenberg on colors. And finally, Permanent Sleepover by Charlie Jane Anders with Rose Stein and Ted Brandt on line art and Tamara Bonvillain on colors and Nadine Jamnia Consulting. We've got VCs Ariana Mar and VCs Clayton Cowell is doing letters for the books. Let's dive into it. All my exes in the Nexus. Loki is in some trouble. I love this story. I'm a big dork. I mean, who doesn't love Loki being hung upside down by like 10 of his exes of various genders and species? Mm-hmm. It was a chicken for me. <laughs> <laughs> the chicken in his like rainbow tank top and mm-hmm. Robert, his robber mask. Yes. I didn't I wanna... even notice the chicken. Oh my gosh. <laughs> you were too distracted by the cat? Yes. <laughs> I want to know if the horse is related to Beta Ray Bill. I thought he was a chameleon, personally, but I also, he also has like a Scandinavian name. There are so many horse aliens in Marvel. Yeah, no, that's Sleep Near in all, this, in all the stories, mythology stories. Like, that's his name. Really? Yeah. I went to Beta Ray Bill because I know he's like horse-like. So this is secretly a Young Avengers story. It, Loki is, is captured by all of his evil exes. I like to think of evil exes like Scott Pilgrim. So oh, it's all I his literally, evil exes. I literally wrote in my in my comments the League of Evil Exes because apparently <laughs> he is Scott Pilgrim. I mean, <laughs> myth, myth story at least. Oh, I mean, I've just had like all my exes live in Texas and like L King exes and O's. I was thinking of Julia Michaels, All Your Exes has that great line that's I wish all your exes were dead. We not only get to see Loki, but we get to see Emperor Hulkling and his court magician Wiccan who are Marvel's royal space power couple right now. These are the space husbands who have the original quantum bands as their rings, I guess which is very cute because they can katang and switch places. And so they mount a rescue mission to go after Loki. So Loki's taken this turn the last few years, kind of opened up about being pansexual, has taken on this more gender fluid identity. And my question really with this story is on a scale of one to 10, just how much of a disaster pansexual is Loki being and why? Disaster? I don't know. Yes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> chaotic pansexual? Yeah, chaotic neutral yeah. based. Like, he can be chaotic without being a disaster. An agent of Asgard, he, in his like most recent rebirth, he moves back and forth between being male Loki and female Loki. And it's not like a Sif Loki in this case. It's genuine, like, this is Loki as a woman. Which shows up in the other Loki story later. Which I, I actually liked that very the very ending of that, personally. Because I was like, oh, because I, I actually do love Lady Loki, personally. I think she looks fabulous. I just don't always love the execution. Odin has recently started like formally referring to Loki as my child who is neither my son nor my daughter which I think is a very sweet kind of honorific for a non-binary character I absolutely think that's great actually yeah I guess I haven't seen him in an inherently queer relationship yet so it just stuff like this kind of doesn't I don't understand it I guess and then it takes me out of it but I I did think it was amusing and fun 
Um, another question I had was, why couldn't it just be Prodigy and Speed? Yeah. That would have been amazing if we could have had them. Just because I feel like, you know, Teddy and Billy are very ubiquitous when it comes to queer stories. They're much more, like, in your face. They're always kind of included. So it would have been nice to see, like, I don't know, a man of color included instead. Especially one who is very tech-savvy, very good at hand-to-hand combat, you know what I mean? Well, and he's specifically bisexual, and you don't have a lot of, like, male characters of color who are also bisexual. It's a very underrepresented, like, identity. I have to tell you, though, as ubiquitous as I find them, this art was so stunning that I I really, I could have read, like, 50 more pages of them, like, in this one issue. The, yeah, the, the facial expressions on America, I realize that she's struggling with her powers, but the way that it's presented on the page, it was just... I just want to give her a hug. (laughs) Yeah. So Alyssa Wong, they did a really good job here handling the continuity of America's story. These books do speak to, I think, kind of an issue that Marvel has because we already saw America having these issues with her powers. Here, it's still happening. There's been no America going on in the rest of the books to have any kind of resolution to this. So is this the only time in the Marvel voices that we're going to see America being handled and maybe eventually get a grip on her powers. Mm. As a person who doesn't keep up with all of these characters all the time, for me, having come from seeing just just seeing Doctor Strange, the fact that America's having difficult with her powers, even though they're slightly different from the movie, it was a point that I was able to follow through on. Would it also have been fine if she had complete control? Probably. But like, I understand sort of where she's at. I love anything that Alyssa Wong does. They have a really good great way of escalating and then bringing it back down to the personal at the end that it's still just about like I want to hang out and be with my friends mm-hmm. and I think that a lot of these stories in these in these pride anthologies are, are very like um, this has to be about the queer experience this has to be about some facet of weirdom that we can turn into the plot and I feel like for this one it didn't matter that Loki is queer it just matters that they put themselves into a silly little situation just so that they could hang out with their friends. When it comes to Loki, I guess I wonder, like, when are we going to pull the trigger on actually seeing Loki do, like, a queer thing with a person of a similar gender? I'm not sure what I'm asking for with this character. (laughs) Well, Loki mentions that he's very glad that two of his exes did not show up, Morgan Le Fay and Hercules. And the reason Hercules didn't show up is because he's busy in space fighting a Gorgon with his boyfriend. Last I heard, Hercules, people got mad at Hercules for making out with Wolverine, so, like, I need an update. <laughs> so we're on ancient and modern now, and that is uh, a great that's a great question. Marvel Boy, who is formerly also of the Young Avengers, got together with Hercules during Al Ewing's most recent run on Guardians of the Galaxy. This is also, I believe, Hercules' first serious relationship since he got sober. So they are really holding down the corner on Marvel's sweetest hunk-twunk power couple right now. And that's personally something I love to see. So this is very much a story that gives us the like, why do opposites attract kind of setup because these two are bickering and bantering their way through a rescue operation and they resolve it with a lovely kiss at the end. There's something really interesting, really good to me about seeing a couple that's past their honeymoon phase and digging into the more complicated facets of their relationship, like beyond initial attraction. Like this is giving us yet another sort of iteration of queer relationship. We've got like Richter and Shatterstar and their lovey-dovey, Mystique and Destiny burn everything down, Wiccan and Hulkling build everything up and on and on and on and on. 
and I guess as queer readers, I mean, how do you feel about this this like just glut of of queer relationships of all different stripes that we get to kind of read about and and experience? I think it's great. I I love being able to see all these different ways that relationships can evolve. I find the dynamics between the character all the different characters really fascinating and having yet another pairing where they're past that that honeymoon phase like you said where they're just kind of doing their thing and living their life and saving the galaxy it's fun i love the fact that that we're past most firsts or we should be mm-hmm. and so now we get to delve past the first past the historics and into the day-to-day we can tell the fairy tale and we can tell the reality and i think to me like what each of these couples brings is another shade of what relationships can be like in the queer community i really enjoy it i love anything that is unabashedly lgbtqia plus but i would love to see them be able to do stories like this in mainstream books Mm -hmm. Uh, i just think it's very rare Uh, so yes we get them in this book and it is fantastic and then we look outside of this book and we don't see these characters anywhere (laughs) So it would be nice if it wasn't just relegated to the safe space. It would be nice if it was, you know, a little bit more broader. But for what we are given, I really, really love, you know, seeing these characters again. I love, you know, revisiting Novar and Hercules and, you know, seeing them kind of do their thing and just live in their life as a couple. It is extremely important for queer people to be able to see characters just being queer. We're a far ways away from kill all your gays it's it's really lovely to see stories that really emphasize queer love over anything else i love the color palette of this story the sort of pink wash that novar's physics cube brings to the whole thing is just a nice contrast to all of these grays and greens and purples and yellows and it really it's just such a bright happy feeling story even though it's you know a battle to save the galaxy from petrification beautifully and that kiss at the end it's now my twitter profile picture because i love it yeah it is it is wonderful the art specifically has just i think was on point the entire book so why don't we move on to the next story lgbtd featuring d-man and the transistors quickly this story takes place in a place called the matt baker house an lgbtqia plus youth center in queens that does not exist but is a reference to matt baker who is a black gay comic book creator working in the industry in the 40s and 50s before he died way too young of a heart attack at 37 in 1959 so this is a really loving nod to an important figure in queer comics history and a really wonderful setting for this this superpower trans youth peer support group to be taking place. I don't know who D-Man is, but he stole the original Daredevil outfit and very confusing for me. Oh my god, Tori. This is, that is the, considering the Billy Club, this is the funniest thing ever because I didn't think of this in context as to where you are right now. Okay, that is absolutely fantastic. Um, I, It's just so nice to see him in a really good place, I guess. I don't know where to begin with the D-Man explanation, Tori, so you're gonna have to wait. He's one of the 
those guys who was kind of a mess for a long time and seems to have found his way in helping other people from his community, which I think is a really just a beautiful development for a character. He's the kind of character who got a lot of made fun of, you know, had shit piled on him. He was the butt of a the butt of the superhero joke. And now he's being taken seriously. And but like I actually really like that he was given like a literal name, not just D-Man, because dear lord, given the context, that'd be so terrible. <laughs> <laughs> We've got the transistors. We've got this awesome, awesome support group of superpowered trans youth. And I don't know about y'all, but I thought this was a really clever way to give us a whole bunch of trans characters at once. Say like, let's do something, folks. I really do think it's it's a great way to introduce us to a bunch of new characters. Really distracted by Good Arson, I kept seeing them as uh, Guy Fairy. <laughs> Oh my god, me too! <laughs> he is very flavor town. Oh very flavor town. Oh my very gosh, I totally town. see that. And I love <laughs> someone who is so bullheadedly into their bad name that they're like, I'm gonna keep it. I'm gonna ask Spider-Man about it and I'm still gonna keep it. <laughs> it's definitely flaming. Yeah, there's no show. I was just like, Peter Parker, that is not your thing to say. <laughs> I literally was blown by that. But you know what? It is what it is. And I, I, I at the end of the, the day, I did actually enjoy the story, regardless of the fact that I do worry that, you know, it's it's awesome to see all of these, you know, characters introduced. Uh, some of them have, like, much more gimmicky powers than others. So my worry is that, like, well, we're just never going to see them again. Because I want to see them again. I especially, Aphelion, like, I am so about that character. Like, the look... And the powers are just so awesome to me. Honestly, Pity Girl has my heart. <laughs> has my soul. Has my lifestyle. <laughs> That's so sad. Yes. Yes, it is. Sit down. <laughs> I also really liked that once they were defeated, Scorpion, I want to say? She was that very... Scorpion, yes. The she was one? very upset because she didn't realize they'd attacked an LGBTQIA youth center and she would never be let into Ginger's again. Ginger's mm-hmm. is a famous lesbian bar in New York City. Yes. And oh, she yeah. has it's just like lost Ginger's the ability to go there. Bowl. Like, those mm-hmm. are the two. Used to have Henrietta's. Ugh. Yeah, it's nice oh, to see that, you know, other Scorpion is also a an ally, you know. <laughs> Even though they are a villain. She loves a cheap drink. We have this interlude in the borders of Wakanda, perfectly seen, starring two characters I'd honestly never heard of before. Venom with two M's, aka mm. Horatio Walters, and Taku, who is, uh, I guess, T'Challa's communications manager. And so these characters have been around since the 70s, but haven't really been very prominent and in this issue we're seeing them as as textually queer as a couple whereas for their entire history before that it's only ever been subtext it's only ever been you know taku and his outlander companion venom how does it feel getting to witness this history right on the page i didn't realize that it was only subtext up to now i had read that they were like they are companions quote unquote but i thought we like solved this in like the last five years so if this is the first time that we get to see them like make out that's great okay so i actually really enjoyed the data page about it it was really interesting i am all about queer history and comics so that was really fun to learn part of me was like okay so this is going to be a story about an interracial couple and queer rage and that could actually very easily be north star and kyle but sure i'll read this and then this ended up being my favorite story 
Because it was really awesome to see characters from back in those days and actually have all the context just confirmed. It was Mm -hmm. amazing to see that happen. Going back to what I was saying before about all these different kinds of queer relationship dynamics that we have now, you know, that angry but reformed villain who toes the line and his lawful good partner who helps soften him and sees all the rough edges and adores him, that is the dynamic here and it's not it's not one we see we don't have these like angry we don't have enough angry queers really yeah that's what it comes down to yeah thinking about that a lot since we've entered july which is queer wrath month yes it is yes Yes, it is is. this is a good story for the cusp of queer pride and queer wrath i think i also think there's something really good about the fact that venom is not venom two m's is not traditionally attractive there's a visual stereotyping of a lot of queer characters towards you know refinement and beauty and like well put together and venom is not really any of those things he's messy he's he's scarred inside and outside but you know the light his queer light and love shines through in this characterization and lucas fornick did such an amazing job here really finding that balance between like he's not conventionally attractive but you can see taku's attraction to him and that's really all that matters I actually have the opposite perspective about Mm. queer characters in most books, Uh, except for a little bit more modern now. I actually felt like we didn't have that. North Star, who is often drawn like a Vulcan, he's got crazy eyebrows, pointy ears. You know, we have Mystique, who is blue. We have Bloke, who is pink, sometimes rainbow colors with a weird bulging skull. We have Vivisector and Fat, you know what I mean? Like, I was taken, like, by surprise when, like, you said that, but you're right, like, in... A more modern day like we definitely have characters that are presented a lot more physically perfect i will admit all of this teasing of venom working for killmonger has me tantalized you know very interested in what that was because it says that he sort of i guess fell in love with eric killmonger and so i'm yeah. like guarantee you killmonger's not returning that but i could be wrong <laughs> i could be wrong and so i was just fascinated but i just love how cute they are with their little snakes and their little tied up bad guys and their picnic basket this was yes, just really I love that so much I'm also a sucker for any gay that like uses snakes as a gimmick. So, <laughs> so I was really, really like, I couldn't believe how much I ended up loving this character. Loving both of them, really. I really enjoyed watching him fret over the day that he had planned in the middle of just beating up these these bad guys. <laughs> and, and it's like him explaining to, to Taku that he had everything planned and these guys ruined it it's their anniversary and everything like that so that kind of care for their relationship in the middle of dealing with bad guys just it it was kind of absolutely we're gonna move down to the guardians of the galaxy in stay out of my mind turf jack in it we've got moon dragon stuck in a motorcycle exploitation inspired dream because they've been watching biker films from the 60s and then she becomes captured in her own mind by the grandmaster i initially kind of read it more as a west side story bit because it was like you know we're gonna rumble and we've got phylavel on one side and 
Moondragon on the other. And of course, they're going to end up smooching it. I think forbidden love stories are extremely queer, no matter who's <sighs> cast into them. But that <sighs> this like this bringing in of two women as the main romantic interests. Yes, this is every riot girl lesbian dream. Like This is <laughs> yeah. 100% that. I, I am a sucker for a any warriors reference. So that was really fun with the Marvels come out to play. <laughs> I would have really loved for like my first real Moon Dragon story to actually read Moon Dragon, but I I did like it. This motorbike gal is definitely a departure from her typical characterization. You know, she was a she was a priestess of Pama, so she's got that kind of like spiritual vibe, but she's also now been merged with an alternate reality Moon Dragon who's got more of an edge to her. Mm. So she's kind of like two two personalities, two opposing personalities now intertwined and meshing into one. So it's it's a bit of a new moon dragon, I guess. <laughs> I really hope that she stays like that way. Because I always pictured her being very zen in like outside of my general knowledge of her. And like this was really fun to see. Yeah, that was actually a big part of her storyline absorbing that other moon dragon and the change in her personality and how it affected their relationship because of that i'm glad to see that continuing in this story absolutely it really neatly resolved like a dangling plot thread of there being two moon dragons hanging out in the 616 Mm -hmm. what do you think of everyone's like motor outfits here you've got like a classic looking drax the destroyer you've got adam warlock in that really sexy leather vest you've got Groot in a leather vest in the background too like everyone's looking fab that was Adam Warlock how did I not figure that out (laughs) he literally looks like him to me now wow I don't know what happened it's a beautiful little story I love the art on this and I'm wondering if this is leading into a conflict with the Grandmaster or if this is just kind of a like one and done and on to the next thing I don't know he looked fried at the end (laughs) (laughs) I kept thinking even though it's not spelt that way I kept thinking Mm-hmm. like turf was t-e-r-f so i kept yep. thinking that was the noun uh, <laughs> so, i kept waiting so, for turf jack to show up I was yes like, All right, let's <laughs> i'm ready yes i did that too i was like i was like stay out of my mind turf jack stay out of my mind turf jack stay out of my mind turf jack like it was it was a trek to get there but i actually think that was kind of like the brilliance of the title so because it was so fun and it just kept making you like go back to it so moving on, we've got Over the Rainbow featuring Rune of the Valkyrie throwing Asgard's first pride, or trying to anyway. But of course, Loki decides to take advantage and make it all about himself. He tries. He tries. He is his he own tries. diva. He is his own diva. It does not look like a very fun party at all. Honestly, it looks good to me because I hate that pride is in the summer because yes. then I melt. <laughs> that so is, I'm like, I, I would like a cold pride. Thank you. Thank you, Tori. That was my thought the moment he was like, hey, Jotunheim. I was like, I would enjoy that. (laughs) (laughs) Runa's like, I'm freezing. I'm like, okay, well, suck it up because that (laughs) sounds like a dream. (laughs) Jesus Christ, 93 degrees in New York City. I really like the art style. This is Lorenzo Susi on pencils and inks. It just, it really fits the mood of the book. Lots of celebration, lots of silly trickery, like nothing too heavy or serious in this story. It's just kind of a, it's a madcap romp. Yeah, I I thought it was just so fun. I was a little bummed that Sarah didn't make it to the Rainbow Bridge this time, but but Angela was holding it down for them. That's one character of the whole like Thorverse who I really love and have really like come to enjoy seeing every time she 
figures on the page. So I was a bit sad that we got an Asgard pride without her. But in general, this was just, it was really cute. Asgard had its first pride celebration on its very own Rainbow Bridge. Yay! Yes! It really did. It was about time. We see Loki switch to Lady Loki. Am I the only danger queen who's like, I hear Loki has a good tongue. I hear it's a fun time. Like, it's pride. There's no strings. Like, let's go. I am with you on this, Tori. Tori knows how to have a fun time at pride is what I'm getting. (laughs) Even though the dialogue was meant to be really like, it was meant to be cute, quirky. I was like, I feel like that doesn't sound like Thor. Mm -hmm. And then the moment Loki popped up, I was like, yeah, it definitely wasn't Thor. (laughs) (laughs) I I fell for it hook, line, and sinker. I thought it was, I thought it was Thor. And I was like, wow, Thor is a dick right now. And then it comes back around that it was Loki. And I was like, oh. And then Thor's like, of course I want you to have a pride party. I was like, oh. You know what? I think for the same exact reason that we see the look on Runa's face when he gives her the answer, and then she thinks back about his partying days (laughs) slash two weeks ago. Uh, I was like, like, yeah, I was like, there's no freaking way. And I didn't even know that Loki was going to be in the story. (laughs) So I was really, really excited that when he finally does show up, he's like, I did no such thing. I've been avenging with the Avengers. Well, let's move on to Permanent Sleepover, starring Sheila Sexton, a.k.a. Escapade, and her best pal, Morgan Red, and their genetically engineered flying turtle, Hibbert. Oh, I kept calling her Shella. Is it Sheila? Uh, that's a good question. I haven't heard it said out loud, but I I went to Sheila because, I don't know, there's something, there's something very Jewish about her being called Sheila. I like that. I like that a lot. As a heeb, myself, I've been calling her Sheila in my head. So this is Escapade's first appearance, but we know from the press release leading into this that Escapade's going to be pretty big in Krakoa world. How do we feel about this initial jump off story? Escapade, who can switch conditions with people, who can switch things with people, who can switch a lot of different stuff with people. It's a very fascinating power with a lot of things that you have to think about when you use it and the the consequences that result because of it. I'm super excited to see what happens when she's reintroduced in in New Mutants. I really want to see how she learns to better use her powers. It's going to be really interesting seeing her come into contact with a lot of Krakoan mutants because how resistant she is to Krakoa as a concept. I think that this is a fault with me and maybe not so much the story because I really am trying to think of it in an unbiased way as possible. I don't love specific terminology used for Krakoa and the mutants in this particular story. So I do think that it's potentially that, you know, we're going to see how Shella slash Sheila like grows into Krakoan culture. But I'm also concerned that like there was no real alternate perspective given because it's not like Emma and Destiny did any kind of denial. I was very confused why training her in her, in her powers was such a uh, emotional taboo. And maybe some of that is because I've seen, I've I've been reading comics for years, and obviously the the tried and true way to control your powers is to train with them, uh, and especially under, you know, the tutelage of our beloved Eggman and mutants. I was very unsure what the choices were there. Of course, Emma Frost is one of my absolute favorite characters, so C- 
seeing her referenced as like her eugenics army like it kind of just like i guess hurt and I, like i said i think that's a fault with like me taking things too personally but i think that because i've seen so much like like fan response negative wise to krakoa and saying these exact things like it just kind of like jarred me it does connect escapade with that that fan critical of krakoa perspective too and you know it could be it could be refreshing to see someone who has this like bold and not necessarily correct view going in and having her worldview shaken up i love that idea i think that's a great story to see i love the idea of a character you know having this kind of mindset and then you know growing to see that it's not what they initially think it is my issue is that there were no alternate perspectives given charlie jane Andrews, she's great she's written one of my favorite novels which is called all the birds in the sky she's a fantastic writer she was one of the i think founders and editors for io9 for a while before she went on to uh, become a novelist she's trans and she's writing trans characters into the marvel universe i'm really all here for that the peanuts bit that ran throughout this was really interesting and i I thought very lived in queer because you had sheila have to come out to her family twice first as a mutant which they were like okay and then again as trans which they were like absolutely no it spoke to me insofar as this idea that like queer people have to come out in so many different contexts throughout their lives and it doesn't always go great I will say that as someone who does not follow the Krakoa thing, from what I'm aware of it, I can understand how this language could be used by people. Mutants basically saying, fuck you, we're going to go live on our own. Don't come near us. Don't touch us. Don't. We're, we're doing our own thing and we want nothing to do with you does seem very up in your high tower. And the fact they come and take young people who are mutants and just squirrel them away, like that is cult behavior. It is understandable. Now, if it's one of those things where like, because the youth don't remember pre, <laughs> pre-2001 queer history, they don't realize why saying why queer isn't a slur. And it's similar to this, where if you're young enough that you don't remember, I mean, I don't know what the world is doing these days. I don't know about these sentinel things, but I'm under the impression that people are sort of more cool with mutants than they have been in a while. And so the youth have been growing up in this world where mutants are like, oh yeah, mutants, whatever. And so to have the mutants behave like they're still suffering under such supremacy would ring false to a lot of the youth because they're like, we're not beating you up. Like, we're not doing anything. Like, why are you pulling yourself away from us? Like, you could, like, what makes you so cool? And so I can understand where this came from and the kind of quasi like conversation it's having about like how Gen Zers approach the older like queer community. And like, wow, yeah. Yeah, that's such a great great point so i am going to repeat something that i said during last year's coverage i really enjoyed this book but i don't feel like i am represented because i am ace and Mm. aces ace and arrow people Mm. are one of the least recognized members of the queer community at Mm -hmm. the moment um a lot of times we are treated like we don't really belong so i hope that the next time marvel does one of these books that they consider having an ace or arrow character story something 
I mean, you've got a perfect opportunity. You have a nation of mutants where their main, one of their main laws is make more mutants. How would a ace mutant live in that kind of environment? Mm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I think that's a really good point, Kyle. There are certain groups within the LGBTQIA plus family that are, I mean, overrepresented in some ways, I would I would say. I think we see a lot of uh, white cis characters mm-hmm. get a lot of page time. And, you know, we could easily reduce that somewhat to make space for more diversity, to make space for other characters who are holding other identities within the within the spectrum. And I I absolutely agree. We should have more ace aero representation. For me, like if you're already committing to a book where you're not going to put your most famous gay in it beyond a couple of mentions, like the Mm -hmm. fact that North Star is already not in here, that means that you're already willing to go outside the the tried and true queer characters that are fan favorites. I'm very shocked that we don't have any neo pronouns in the comics yet. We have so many alien races. You're telling me they're all pulling the they them, you know, like I feel like there's so much more to discover. And personally, I dislike the fact that it's Marvel Voices Pride number one, 2022. I'm wondering when we get Marvel Pro- Voices Pride number two, 2022. <laughs> You're here. Yeah. Yeah. 